I'm honored to be joined today by Angel Miller. He's a hypnotist, martial artist, and author of five books on spirituality, including The Path of the Warrior Mystic, Being a Man in the Age of Chaos. Angel, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. This book was very influential on me. You talk about masculinity, not just in this social kind of stereotypical way that it's often talked about today, but in its deepest spiritual sense. And you talk about mythology across a variety of cultures and these ancient patterns of masculinity. And the other thing that I like about this more symbolic archetypal view is that this doesn't exclusively apply to men, right? You talk about men I, embracing yeah. their feminine side, women embracing yeah. their masculine side. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, only 95, there's a little bit in there about, about sexuality that might not apply to women, but otherwise, yeah. And yeah, I think that's one of the things that says this part of the book, apart from other books that, I, that I've read on masculinity or that you could come across, and that is, it's not about chest thumping, being more and more manly. It's about what is the archetypal, archetypal vision of the masculinity. And in, really, in, in, probably in every culture, at least every civilization, the ideal man wasn't just something moron. He was someone who was articulate, you know, wrote poetry, things that things today that we would think are incredibly feminine. Of course, they wasn't considered to be feminine. If you're writing poetry a thousand years ago, you know, you could be a Viking warrior and write poetry. It wasn't regarded as a feminine, but. At its foundation, the, the sort of masculine archetype is something, someone who's holistic, right? You can defend yourself or engage in war, people also can write poetry, play music, maybe you read, you think you're a thinker, it's completely different. So warrior mystic is this idea of becoming balanced, holistic individual. Yeah. You have both training of the mind and the body. Yeah, that's right. And this is probably an honorable pronunciation in, in classical Japanese civilization as the idea of Bunbo Ryodo. It's the way of literature or the way of civilization and the way of war or the way of the warrior together. And you find this all over. So Plato talks about education through wrestling, music, and philosophy. So yeah, exactly. Bringing these, these kind of two, at least two elements together in the sort of martial and the more mystical, cultural spiritual elements together. As you mentioned, ancient philosophers focused a lot on strength and body as well as mind. And warriors yeah. wrote poet poetry and were artistic and trained very holistically. At, at what point and why do you think societally, at least in Western culture, these two things branched off and are now seen as opposite? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Certainly, if we go back to the early 20th century, there were already complaints chivalry men giving up your seat to a woman on the train or something like that. It's not even, you know, inherently wrong with that. But the, the idea of masculine heroism or being physically strong had pretty much disappeared, right? As, a, you know, as an ideal of chivalry anyway. But uh, yeah, it's difficult to pinpoint uh, why it became split from the two. I suspect that probably World War I had a lot to do with the situation we're in today. In the, in the West, at least, the churches would say, go and fight the, the good fight and it would be over by Christmas and this kind of thing. And it was sold to young men as maybe not an adventure, but something that wasn't going to ruin their lives. And then millions of them went and died in this sort of mechanized warfare where they would just be moved down with machine guns and had no hope of making any, any difference whatsoever, except to be cannon fodder, really. And after that, obviously young men were disillusioned with traditional church because the church had told them to go and fight and they came back mutilated or with limbs missing or simply came back dead. And then women, of course, pretty much had a generation where they weren't going to get married, which today may not seem like a big deal. You can go and work and become CEO of Fortune 500 company, but that wasn't the case in 1920 or whenever. And then I suppose as World War II uh, had 
more of an effect as well. Maybe not more than First World War, but maybe I think led to this sort of just total devastation. I think Americans forget that much of Europe was just wiped out. Soldiers would come back from war to find their house and they couldn't even find the street they were on because it was just, just rubble, just reduced to rubble. And a lot of cities were like that. So I think after that, you get a disillusionment with these tradition and therefore with traditional gender roles, as it will be called today. But in the fifties, I guess you still have the sort of, you have the masculine man, but in a sense, there's kind of a bit of an idea. He likes cars and baseball, but he's never going to write a poem or even be polite to his wife or whatever. But after that, of course, we get the 1960s with the hippies. And then after that, a whole sort of slew of radical youth cultures and fashions. They're always trying to reinvent themselves. Maybe consequently are reintroducing ancient themes as well. The hippies were looking at Eastern mysticism, for example, and even goth in a way, so drawing on this, this sort of romantic sensibility of Edwardian Britain or whatever it may be. So the idea of these universal ancient patterns playing out cross-culturally and historically and in our stories really is what drew me to Jungian psychology. And that's not too fashionable, at least in modern right. academic yeah. psychology. It's seen more as this more spiritual, non-scientific fringe idea. And yeah. I do take those criticisms seriously because modern psychological research is all about finding empirical data. But I think some of the best psychological theories are grounded in evolutionary psychology. And when I see these repeating archetypal patterns across cultures, even though it's hard to show empirically, but I have a hunch that there's a reason that you see universal patterns emerging as though these are adaptive solutions to use the evolutionary language. And we're trying to communicate some message and humanity across areas of the globe are converging on similar messages and similar themes of what it means to live a good life or what it means to be a healthy man or woman and what masculinity and femininity means and how each sex can balance that harmoniously with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Some of it, of course, is because there are sort of limited um, things in the environment in comparison today, right? So you could always go to fixate on the southern moon, for example, if you live in a you know, natural environment. But, but yeah, it's certainly true that if you look at different mythologies, all of their differences, there are definitely similarities. And then the cultures that, and the civilizations that emerge also have these similarities as well. And I think you're right that there is an element of, of the evolutionary in that. And, he, and as you say, or at least I think you're implying it, even Jung's archetypal the collective unconscious in a way could be related to some sort of evolutionary processes, right? You touch on that a little bit in the book when you're talking about the modern pitfalls that many people have, like addiction to junk food or porn or social media, anything that gives you immediate gratification. And plenty of great psychologists have put an evolutionary spin on this, that these are very new technologies. We yeah. didn't evolve with this type of temptation constantly around us right, in our right. ancient environment. High yeah. fat, high sugar food is rare. Yeah. It's energetically dense. It's good for you to have a strong taste for it. And now it's like on a global level, or at least again, in industrialized societies, there's a huge selection pressure in favor of discipline and delay of gratification, these traditionally yeah. masculine virtues that you talk about. That's and right. people who can lean into that, their lives do seem to get better, but it's a huge test. And if you don't learn that lesson, it's very costly. Yeah, no, it's a huge test. And a couple of things there. And one thing is we can have anything we want today. You're pretty much at the press of a button. But the one thing that we can't have those probably worth more than all of that is anticipation. Even if you went back a few decades, if some, you know, some obscure musical band was going to release an album, or if some really obscure author was going to release a book, you'd have to travel to 
closest city, maybe even that wouldn't be good enough sometimes. You'd have to travel somewhere. You'd have to find some obscure shop that was selling it, would sell these rare objects and then buy it and take it home and read it or play it, whatever the case may be. But as a consequence, people really value that stuff. But now you can just download it on the internet. There's no anticipation, but I think as human beings, we need that. We get these constant dopamine hits. Everything just seems more and more boring. Something that would have been really exciting and interesting that you would have thought about a lot a few decades ago. Now it just, it doesn't really seem exciting. And even the equivalent doesn't seem exciting or not for very long because you're constantly bombarded by this newness as a new song every minute or a new book every minute or whatever it may be, or a new distraction or a new video that pops up or a new ad for something you've never thought of. But I think, uh, you know, to make a sense of life and to make life meaningful, you need anticipation. And if you think about even a century ago, right, maybe even less than a century ago, but certainly if you go back several centuries, seasonal holidays or seasonal festivals or a really big deal so that you would look forward to Christmas or whatever it may be for weeks uh, before that, prepare for a long time before that. So you get this sort of delayed gratification where you're always looking into the future at this next big thing. And in a way that's sort of looking forward and preparing and delaying the gratification is probably in many respects better for you than the actual celebration itself, right? The celebration is nice, but we all know how much gratification we get out of looking forward to something. And that's a discipline, right? That we can't really have in this day and age because, okay, it might be Christmas coming up or any other holiday, but so what? I can go and get all the stuff I want and more just with a few clicks of the buttons. What does it matter if someone's going to give me things, whatever. Anticipation and boredom are an interesting lens to view meditation through. You've written yeah. about the yeah. benefits of meditation many yeah. people have, and I've tried yeah. it before. I haven't managed to make it stick as a habit. And I think two yeah. things usually happen. The first is that if I try and sit still, not thinking about anything, right. usually thoughts just come, whether it's thinking yes. about past memories or yeah. planning, what am I going to do as soon as the meditation's yeah. over? What are the deadlines looming? And even insofar as I can push away those thoughts and genuinely just sit, I get bored. Yeah. And well, what do you do past that? Yeah, that, that's something I think most people experience. And it's definitely something I experience. If you think about awareness meditation, which is what most people think of when they think of meditation, you sit there and you focus on your breath. And maybe some people will say inhaling or breathing in. As they breathe in, as they breathe out, they say exhaling or breathing out. And then if they have an itch on their head or they feel a bit tense in their neck, they might just say to themselves, sensation, maximally not out loud. And so they're just trying to observe all these things that are going on in them. But it, to me, that's not conducive to the Western mind. And by that, anyone who grew up in the West, we, we like to have a pay. So what I have found very beneficial is instead of just observing these things, you want to try and have an aim and the aim should be to be as relaxed as possible, right? So if that's your aim, let's say I feel awesome, I feel tension in my neck, instead of just saying to myself, sensation, something like that, I will say, my neck is relaxing. I'm becoming more and more relaxed. Or if I notice, if I then notice some of this tension in my face, right? So then I'll just say the same thing face is relaxing or my jaw is relaxing and become more and more relaxed. And of course, the more you relax, the more you notice there's tension in your body, right? So you could be really relaxed, but then you start noticing even more subtle layers of tension. So if you keep doing that, then at some point you're going to be extremely relaxed, but you might even go into a state of hypnagogia where you start dreaming, which I can be. Yeah, it can be quite visionary, even though they're just flashes usually. So, so my way around this is to have that aim of, I want to relax as much as possible. So I'm going to tell myself I'm relaxing. I'm going to try and correct these things by saying these parts of my body are relaxing when I sense tension. And then maybe I'll go into a state of hypnagogia at some point. This idea of that comfort of relaxation 
and the discomfort of boredom. It's there's something related to yeah. that, I think, in this motif of the journey into the unknown. And you explore this in your book sure. through discussion of King Arthur's Knight's story. You talk about Sir yeah. Gawain going out right. into the unknown. Yeah, just to touch on boredom, first of all. Yeah, I think if you look at youth cultures from the 1920s all the way through to the, maybe through the 1990s, what you notice about young people is that they're always inventing these new, interesting cultures with new music and new fashion. And whether we like them all or not, every maybe seven to 10 years, that young people will invent something new. And you know, in terms of clothes and music, especially, and that, of course, with that comes dance. But if you're, what is the music at the moment? It's, you know, hip hop has been around for 40 years. Country has been around for everybody, I don't know, 70, 80 years. Nothing really new has been invented. You don't go on the street and see young people dressing in some crazy way that we've never seen before. And I think you see weird TikTok dances instead. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's all, it's all online, which is, which is one thing. But I think the other thing is because young people were really existentially bored, they decided, okay, we just need to create something totally new and then have these nightclubs where we go and we have a kind of different world. So that boredom pushed creativity. And I think there's been a, a decline in creativity over the last 20 or 30 years. And I think that that. The instant accessibility of everything is probably partly it. There might be other reasons, such as a, a greater emphasis on conformity or fear of doing something creative, but then people say it's somehow immoral or whatever, and you could be in trouble. So that might be another reason, but it's probably also to do with teaching as well. But, but certainly, yeah, boredom is probably an element. No one's bored enough to really create anything. But in regards to the myth of Sigwain, yeah, so. As, as in the uh, Middle English uh, tale on Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, it's King Arthur's court is celebrating Christmas and then this huge green giant strolls in, having been, uh, having got there on his green horse and, and says, uh, one of you should uh, chop off my head with my axe as long as I can do it to you later on. And, and of course, no, no one really wants to take on this bizarre green, huge knight, but eventually Sir Gawain takes up the ax and the, the giant knight bows his head and allows it to be chopped off. And then the headless green knight goes over and picks up his own head and says, come and find me and at a year from now, the green chapel. And, and, uh, and rather than running away or getting an army together in the story, Sir Gawain, Sir Gawain uh, goes in search of the green chapel and then one imagines that he must think that he's going to die at the end of it because, uh, he's not going to be able to pick up his own head after it's been chopped off. And, but there is, there's a message there about keeping one's word, right? Which is very important until, I guess it's still important, but even a few decades ago, maybe half a century or more in Britain, at least, if you shook hands with someone and promised something that. If that went to court, that was regarded as, as good as a written contract. If you did that, whereas now everything would have to be written out and signed and sealed and booked over by the lawyers because one, one's word is not good enough in the modern age. Uh, I wonder if social media has contributed to that dishonesty, especially when you're dealing anonymously. Anonymity, surely, uh, yeah. And I think probably the other thing is, and I don't blame people for being involved in politics and screaming and all this kind of thing. Because I think in a way people are victims of the algorithms themselves. They're being fed this stuff that makes them angry on purpose. But I think the other thing is, you do know, people feel that the other side is dishonest. So if I'm, if I'm dishonest, that's just being clever and it's okay because it's a tactic. When I was at school, my teacher, one of my teachers was talking about tactical voting and saying, if the, if the party you want to win, isn't going to win in your borough or whatever, then you vote for another party that might win just to keep out the one that you don't really like. And that sounds like you're being really super intelligent, right? I'm a tactical voter, but the end result of that is 
tactical parties that know what to say to win you over and then don't follow through with that once they get elected. I might be an interesting case study for you here, Angel, is coming from this social media generation. Now, I was very obsessed with video games as a child, and I think there's a couple interesting things here. For one thing, it was always the medieval type fantasy video games oh, really? that attracted me. And you see some parallels here with this interest in mythology, which I've also had since yeah, I was a child. Yeah. But I lack the language, I think, to realize that the core interest underlying both the interest in mythology and video games and later in psychology were these archetypal patterns, like this sure. sense of living out the hero's journey. Yeah. And I wasn't involved in athletics really as a child, but you're simulating it on the game. And not only right. that, but you mentioned dopaminergic reward. It's all much more fast paced. Like yeah. you get the points on the screen, you feel good without really having to exert much real effort like you do when you're exercising. So that's a, an interesting piece that we can return to. And yeah. then the second was, this was a form of socialization for me, but because it was so detached from the real world, there were a lot of scams online, especially because it was little kids playing. And some of the younger kids are naive relative to yeah. the older kids. For example, some of these games, they have combat, but they're limited to certain areas. Let's say most of the game, you're in an environment where it's safe and you can't attack each other or steal your stuff but you can trick someone into following you to a dangerous area and then you kill them, you take their stuff. And I would do that both on the getting scammed side at the beginning when I was first playing and then later sure. doing it to some poor little kids. And especially when I was on the doing it side, I would justify it with these types of rationale you were just mentioning. They were naive. They deserved it. Through this scam, they're going to learn like I learned the hard way. And that's related to this toxic masculinity that people talk about. It's not virtuous. It's the opposite yeah. of these knights that the stories yeah. that Sir Gwen and others are the virtues that they're acting out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how relevant this is, but I do remember when I was a little kid watching, watching a war movie and, and, and you would see scenes like this, but there was one scene where there was a British officer and a German Nazi officer. And one of them pulled a pistol on the other and the other one put his thumb over the pistol. And I don't think that would have really done anything, but uh, the idea was that it was somehow the gun would explode and they would both be killed if they, if he pulled the trigger. And then I remember saying to my father, why don't you just pull the gun away and shoot him? And but there was this idea that these are officers and gentlemen, and they would never do anything so dastardly or underhand. If they both are going to die, that's fine. But they would, they would prefer that to, to being dishonest or the behavior of the hoi polloi who just want to win for the sake of it or to save their own skins. So that this wasn't becoming of a real gentleman, which is a sort of hangover from chivalry, right? But yeah, so yeah, it's interesting. So they are playing these games about chivalry, but everybody's working out how to. Yeah. Eventually in my late teens, it hit me that yeah. I was investing into essentially virtual strength and money gains that no one cared about, but from the re real world. And I was bullied. And in general, there's this stereotype of living in your mom's basement. I was a kid, so it's fine to be living at home, right. but yeah. not really contributing to society much, not, yeah. if anything, gaining weight and not being physically healthy, but ironically exercising a virtual character on the screen. Yeah. Eventually, it just hit me that if I treat my life like a video game and begin to exercise myself and yeah. focus on real rewards, that yeah. that works, even if you have to play a much longer term game and it involves this delay of gratification. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I'm interested in esoteric spirituality. And what I find a lot is that there's an adult version of this where people will join these secret societies that allegedly have some lineage that is unprovable going back to some medieval knightly order, but at the same time, they're never going to work out or learn a martial art or go to the gym twice a week or anything. So what does it matter if you're a, a knight in some secret knightly order, but you're not even doing the, even the fundamentals, even an hour or so a week, but it still attracts people and they and people get a lot of meaning out of it, even though people are thinking over in their thirties, forties, fifties. So as I was reading 
the path of the warrior mystic, a lot of it was resonating with me. For one thing, PhD student, this is generally pretty extreme, like in this intellectual domain. And you work a lot. Often people don't have really balanced lives. So often yeah. you're like staying late at night in lab. Yeah. You're eating junk food. You're drinking copious amounts of coffee. You're not focused on the health of your body, but your mind is getting a stronger workout than almost anyone in the world. Sure. And you become very imbalanced. And I don't know what it was exactly. It's partially related to this video game attitude towards life. But I got into fitness as well. And right. you mentioned other creative activities. Science is very creative. You also mentioned earlier romance and dance. I got into dancing, but only ballroom dancing. So this uh -huh. is partner, man and woman. Yeah. And you also mentioned clubs earlier. Those have never appealed to me. And it's partially because I'm introverted, but I don't think that's fully an explanation because yeah. introvert wouldn't go out ballroom dancing. But there's something about that one-on-one yeah. -on -one connection that is not only really fun, but it, it makes me feel like I'm growing. And once I read Path of the Warrior Mystic, it just clicked in such a way of, this is developing myself into a warrior mystic. And you also talk about the importance of initiation, like going mm -hmm. through this long period of mentorship. So if this was knighthood, you'd have to be a squire for a long time. In a way, the PhD education or any education really is like that. You have a mentor, yeah. you're low on the hierarchy for many years, but yeah. then you advance and you earn this title showcasing your expertise and it carries you the rest of your life. Sure. Yeah, that's right. In regard to dancing, the best done warriors were supposed to be the best dancers. And even in our 20, even in the 20th century, Bruce Lee, as everyone knows, as a master in Kung Fu or Wing Chun. Early in his life, he was also a, 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 a I don't know what his title was, but was, I guess not a ballroom champion, but a show champion or something like that. So he was actually a champion dancer as well which you don't really hear mentioned very often, but you can see how it relates to martial arts, right? You need to be able to do so. So even there that at least I want to interpret it in a, could this still be imbalanced? Like he's great at fighting and dancing, but those are all physical activities. Yeah. Is his mind underdeveloped, but at right. least fighting and dancing, they also take a lot of planning and mental skill. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a lot of mental discipline. That's for sure. Yeah, I think it's, it's probably especially, I don't want to say especially because I'm not a dancer, but there is something strange about martial arts where you're going to get hurt or do get, are getting hurt and you still have to respond to that intelligently in some way and, and very rapidly as well, very beyond what you could think consciously much of the time. So there's this hard balance of what is the right amount of say discomfort or yeah. injury to expose yourself to, because there's certainly yeah. a thing of pushing yourself too hard, whether that's at the gym yeah. or just any form of risk-taking that's dangerous and stupid. But then there's the type of risk-taking that's venturing out just enough into the unknown that you grow as a person. For sure. Yeah. Risk-taking where there's no reward. That's definitely stupid. Jumping off a really tall building, that would be bad. But and you, know, and you do see these videos or you hear people doing sort of crazy things, usually men in their late teens or whatever. Against that too, it's boredom and they need to feel that they need to prove themselves in some way. But yeah, taking the unnecessary risks is usually a bad idea. But so yeah, you do have to balance that and see what's, what's the reward and risk balance there. But yeah, and pushing, pushing yourself definitely can be a bad thing as well. One thing. I believe this is correct, but people who work out all the time might not put on as much muscle as they think because they're so overexerting themselves. You, you need those mm -hmm. periods of rest as well. And you certainly um, uh, people who worked out really excessively and were still really overweight, but they didn't sleep properly. And the way you put on muscle is to exercise, it damages the muscles, then you need to rest so the body can repair itself and, you know, strengthen your muscles that your, your muscles actually expand. Yeah. There's so you good, need that. Good neuroscience research on something like that as well for learning and memory, where yeah, that's right. you study that's eight right. hours straight, you're not doing yourself any good. The intermittent yeah. breaks actually give you a time for memory consolidation. Yeah, that's right. Definitely. Yeah. So that's how you could work meditation into it, right? You can study for an hour and do 10 minute meditation relaxation.
There was a famous physicist, I don't know who it is, but they were commenting on the modern academic culture where you're expected to publish and publish a lot. And it's yeah. almost like quantity over quality. Yeah. And this physicist who made some major theoretical breakthrough said this came after decades of really just thinking. And yeah. if he didn't have that protection, he wouldn't have been able to make this breakthrough. And yeah. I wonder to what extent I'm lacking any sort of insight because in general, I avoid being bored. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. The way you come up with anything new, whether it's a book or a scientific experiment, or whatever, a new invention, usually that you have different influences from different places that don't always seem to be coherent in a way. So maybe you're studying I don't know, mathematics, but you also look at art, or you study physics, but you also look at sport and or history or whatever it is. And then somehow these over a period, they usually merge together in an interesting way. Not that you're making art out of mathematics and everything, but you get some insight out of these other things that you can apply to your own, your own field. That's often what happens. And then it seems like there's a large process of different people who are, you make it really big in a field, I either specialize like crazy or they have prior experience in another field, a pretty significant experience and some of them bring that into it. The time. You also talk about the... Steve Jobs. I think it might not have been in this one. Maybe it was on your book on initiatic spirituality yeah, maybe, yeah. that he had some obscure interest in yeah. calligraphy yeah, and brand. indirectly this led to creating the idea of personalized fonts on personalized computers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and studied handwritten calligraphy under a Trappist monk. And to, to us today, the idea of different fonts on a computer is completely normal. But early computers had a sort of calculator type font. And calculate, calculators have never changed their font or their graphics. And typewriters have never changed their font. There's, so there's no reason to think yeah, why do we just have loads of fonts on a computer? And I'm sure if you said that to most people, they would think, why? Because it's doing its job fine. What, what does it matter if you have sans serif font as opposed to Times New Roman? Who cares? And because of this obscure interest that must have seemed laughable to most people, he realized that you could put that into a modern computer and it would completely revolutionize everything. And that's often how things happen like that. There's a sort of self-selection into the types of com computer engineers who were designing the earliest ones probably weren't the most yeah. artistic, but in a way that is a specialty, a niche that we need in our culture. And this yeah. is another almost paradox I've been wrap trying to wrap my head around. So there's an implicit or explicit message in the path of the warrior mystic and in society generally that creativity is good and leadership is good, but not everyone can be creative. And not everyone right. can be a leader. If everyone's a leader, who's, who are, who yeah. is there to lead? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's in my writing, that's something that is definitely different to other books or manhood that I emphasize creativity. I think we can probably all be more creative than we are, but we can't all be Mozart's or whatever. That's just impossible because as you say, it takes a long time. I mean, I, I don't often think to myself, it takes about 10 years to think through anything properly or to have a, or to have an original thought it takes about 10 years because you have to go through all this stuff, you learn something, get to know it really well, and then you start to see the, the gaps in the field, right? And then maybe you can have an original idea where you can think, oh, we can do it in this completely different way. You have thoughts all the time, obviously, and one, one easy way being creative is just to say, why don't we do the opposite? Or why don't we merge these two things together? I want to create a new style. So why don't we merge punk with Victorian dresses or whatever, right? Anyone, anyone can say this, right? We just bring these two different things together and we've got a new thing. But I think if you're really serious and revolutionary, yeah, it takes about 10 years to think through it and then to, to see what's missing or how it can be done differently. So do you think there's question. anything? new in the path of the warrior mystic? Even if the answer is no, I think it's yeah. valuable in the sense of newly repackaging ancient ideas yeah. that aren't being talked about as much, but yeah. is that primarily what it is? Or have you sprinkled in some of your own original thought in there as well? 
Yeah. So I would say both. I think it is my original form, but I think sometimes when you have a really original form, it's also archetypal, right? And it's been thought before. Mm -hmm. So it's paradox, really. But yeah, I think, I don't think there's a, another book out there like that. Some people have compared it to, what is it? King, Magician, Warrior, Lover. I have to say, I really hate that book. And most people that I know who've read it absolutely love it. But I just think the premise is wrong for a start. But if it's, how does that relate to society? King, magician, warrior, lover. Who's making the food? So to me, it's, it's implicitly a sort of overly romantic book. And he hints at some archetypal things, but it, it tends to focus too much on the modern things for me. I don't really care about 1960 movies or whatever. But so beyond the title, I don't think there's a lot of comparison really. But yeah, so I think, I don't think there's a book out there that's saying quite what that book says, but consequently, yeah, it, of course it reflects something more archetypal. So even the division into three, right, you can relate that to Plato's suggestion of learning through music, philosophy and wrestling, for example, and you find this all over the place in different ways. Yeah. It did remind me of some of Jordan Peterson's work, and that might be just mm -hmm. to the extent that you're drawing on Jungian archetypes and some of these common themes, it seemed yeah. like the major divergence was where he goes more into neuropsychology right. to fortify the argument. You're talking more about artistry and culture and yeah. ancient mythology. Yeah. I've listened to many of his videos. I actually haven't really read his books. If there is any similarity, it's probably unconscious, but. Uh -huh. yeah, I think I that's mean... even cooler because then that's a convergent message from yeah. very distant lines of research. Yeah. Yeah. He gets a bad rap, obviously. And what people say he's saying is not really what he's saying, but mm -hmm. he endorses masculinity, but it's, it's probably someone who endorses creativity to a certain extent as well. I know he talks about art in the past, so mm -hmm. that's probably true. Yeah. Although we're coming at it from opposite directions, maybe. Has your work ever been mischaracterized in that negative way? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And sure. I could go on to amazon.com and buy foolish reviews or whatever, but yeah, I've had, and I've read people making snidey comments about my, usually about articles or something like that. I can say completely hand on her 100% every time uh, someone's made rude remarks about my work, I've got the feeling that they either haven't read it and, or, or B that they have read part of it at least. And they're intelligent enough to know what it's actually about, but they want to get some applause and some shout outs so they will mischaracterize it intelligently, consciously. And I, I, so I can't really take these people seriously. I don't think, I think they've either not read it or they're not honest. Yeah. Right. The part that I could see being mischaracterized, it's even in the subtitle, the being a man in an age of chaos yeah. and the focus on masculinity in general. Yeah. Focusing on masculinity, even in a positive direction, people seem skeptical about it oh, yeah, in modern sure. culture. The really interesting thing is that if you spin it in the right way, like in some ways you're embracing a lot of feminine virtues. You're saying men should yeah. be more creative, more artistic, right. more empathetic. Yeah. 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 I suppose they want really feminine virtues if you went back a few hundred years, but they are now, which is ironic. So interesting. So the, I think it's very much a kind of 1950s model of a man, right? That you're a man, you fix cars, you watch baseball, you drink, whatever the replacement of Bud Light is, and, and you're a bit stupid and, and you're not very thoughtful. And then the, the woman is the sort of thoughtful one and whose voice isn't listened to or whatever. But it's this degenerate representations of men or women, right? If you go back. I don't want to romanticize the past because obviously it didn't apply to everyone, but the ideal in every classical civilization is that a man should be, a man should be wise and loyal, should be empathetic, at least to, to his troops or whatever, and should be creative. There's a, there's an interesting marketing guru called Rory Sutherland that he points out there's an army general. And that artists actually think alike because the, the general can't do what's rational. It has to do whatever is counterintuitive because it keeps doing what's rational, then it's going to be predictable. And then these troops will be wiped out. So it's to think more like an artist. But I think that's true, right? 
Yeah, it, it is true though. I mean, I'm sure a lot of pro-masculine type guys read my book and think, what? He says, if, if you think you're a, you know, tough guy, you should take up poetry. Well, who is this guy? They probably think it's sacrilegious. But yeah, poetry today seems effeminate. Great warriors were poetry. Yeah. That, that idea of a potential reader who turns out to be disillusioned, it's a caricature, but there's some insight there about there's a part of people that's seeking for some genuine way to improve. But then there's also a separate part of us that's almost, we already have an expectation of what we think would work. You're seeking out, say, advice on masculinity, and that part is genuine. But then there's some yeah. part of you that thinks poetry can't be it. I'm going to reject that. Right. Yeah. And there's a paradox there because if you knew the answer already, you wouldn't be seeking it out. But that part of you that rejects certain solutions presupposes you mentioned that there are sex differences in attitudes towards romance. And there's this balance between, let's say, lust and love. Obviously, if we're generalizing, yeah, there are, there are differences in the way men and women see things. The most controversial part of the book is I talk about how the strong man wants, wants his lover to, or beloved to turn into a devouring goddess. And I talk about the symbolism of beheading. Obviously you see images of Medusa, right? But, but it's curious that you see a lot of, a lot of paintings over the last few hundred years of, of men being beheaded who appear by, by women who appear to be in a state of ecstasy. And it has this very sort of sexual look when you really look carefully at it. And I think this beheading image is on some level, this idea of the, the petty more, the, the orgasm, which is it's death as well. But I think one of the things about men is, or maybe that the romance of men is this idea of innocence dying, right? You want to die for your lover or die for your country or whatever it is. Whereas I think probably women more so want to stay alive so that they can look after their children, right? Or want to, want to protect their children. And so that's pretty, that's the romantic thing for them. But it is, it's interesting that I point this out, I forget which book, but we give women flowers to celebrate life. There are folk festivals where pubescent girls are dressed up in flowers and paraded and this kind of thing, or women get flowers on Valentine's day. We give women flowers uh, in relation to life, but men get flowers in relation to death. There's the, the poppy wreaths that you see in London on Armistice day to celebrate, commemorate the unknown soldier and to commemorate them. What's in the, the flower you wear is a, a poppy which looks like a gunshot. And that's when men get flowers or in the Iranian martial art of uh, in there, when two athletes are going to battle each other, they were, or traditionally they would exchange flowers, right? When they're going to injure each other, they give each other flowers. So yeah. I, think, I think that's telling that when you get flowers women get it for life and uh, reproduction and men get it for death. And yeah, so I think our romance is very often caught up in this death that we want to be, we want to die for our lover or our country, or we want our lover to turn into this houring being who's going to destroy us in a moment of sexual ecstasy, but I could be wrong. There's some connection there to this Phoenix motif of dying, but re being reborn stronger. Yeah. We talked yeah. about how you do that with your muscles when you're working out, there right. might be yeah. some connection. To Christ as well, not necessarily in Christianity in the strict sense, but the way that Jung talks about it, is Christ yeah. is this archetypal ideal of a man who sacrifices for the betterment of mankind. Yeah, that's right. The Phoenix is a symbol of Christ in the West, right? So I'm sure it's that in the I'm sure you would see that in alchemy, and you will see that in Freemasonry as well, in the Rose Quad degree, without getting into the complexities of Freemasonry. But in this degree, where there's a sort of theatrical ritual, pelican, that's a pelican, yes. But I think the phoenix is in there as well. But yeah, but this phoenix, yeah, the phoenix definitely is related to Christ and the pelican is related to Christ as well. I don't know if there's any cultural shared lineage between Freemasonry and fraternities and sororities as we think about them in modern American education. 
But those have almost become caricatures of maybe how they started in the sense that these are typically the organizations that are least intellectually developed, most leaning into that sort of party culture, risk-taking, focused on the here and now, and I guess more on the body than on the mind. Yeah, I've never experienced American personalities in that sense. But yeah, because they have a very bad rap, obviously, and probably for good reason a lot of time. But yeah, I think if if you went back a century, 150 years, you would find that they were much more about um, instilling some kind of ethics and obviously creating some kind of in-group as well, but maybe creating some kind of initiation into manhood as well for these guys that are at college. And same with sororities as well. Yeah, they're pretty more serious. There are these interesting opposite biases when you you look on the past, because occasionally we do, especially if we're talking about moral matters or how violent and brutal humanity used to be. We talk about our ancestors as almost less evolved than us, like they just didn't know as well. And then other times we have this huge nostalgia bias, like the ancients has wisdom that we've lost and modern culture is deteriorating in all these ways. But the truth must be somewhere in the middle. There's something archetypal about those two motifs. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably both are true, right? So probably they were more brutal and bloodthirsty and didn't really care about killing people from another tribe or culture in, in general. But they probably also have wisdom that we have lost as well, uh, depending on what, what we're talking about. But I think probably this might be, this might sound very elitist, but we tend to think of cultures as one thing, but within those cultures, there's a range of intelligence, obviously, and, and an interest and curiosity. And I think that most people don't think deeply about things. And it's probably always the case. And this is this sort of paradox of what's the right advice to give people? Cause you, on one hand, you want this motivation of people should embody more leadership, more creativity, yeah. more intellect, more rationality. Yeah. All of that is really hard work. And wouldn't it be great if everyone can do it? But then there's a recognition that not everyone can or should. And you don't want to sound elitist when you say that, but I imagine you might run into this in your hypnotist consulting practice because you're trying to advise people to live better lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. And I think, honestly, the people that really push themselves very often come from backgrounds that are bad, right? But maybe it's an abusive childhood, maybe it's poverty, maybe they had some terrible illness when they were a child or something really bad happened to them. Typically, what I see, those are the people that push themselves to excel in some field. Mm-hmm. And the people that have a pretty okay childhood are probably going to have a pretty okay adulthood, but they're never going to become um, a great leader or greatly creative because it's been a little too comfortable for them. I mean, we want people to be comfortable and not suffering, obviously, but from what I can see, yeah, people who become leaders or put their neck out or do something totally original, they come from not a great past. Maybe there were great things about their childhood, but there were things that they had as well, really bad. And in a certain sense, you have to come from a little bit of a broken past to take the risk, right? Because otherwise, why would you stick your neck out if everything's okay? I relate to that. I think yeah, seeking I out this, for, this sort of masculinity yeah. and spiritual guidance and self-improvement probably stems in some ways from growing up without a father. And oh, yeah, yeah, I am, yeah. But I also think that some of the people who arrive at this sort of more traditionally masculine conservative values might have arrived there because they were explicitly modeled that by a father. So it's almost maybe like a U-shaped relationship where if you lack it entirely, you really seek it out. If you're modeled Mm -hmm. it greatly, you seek it out. And then if you have someone who's just there, I don't know, maybe you don't have as much drive in one direction or the other. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely true that if you grow up in, in, I don't know, in a very traditional family, we were dead like, okay, grab the axe. We're going to chop down a tree and make firewood. And then we're going to go out and shoot a bear and eat it. You probably are going to end up like that, but you're probably also not going to think, you know what, I should create, I should write poetry. I should study for a PhD or anything. So you, yeah, you do, you keep replicating that, but you're not. There's still something missing, right? Half of the picture is missing. 
from a classical point of view. Mm -hmm. Which side did you come from? Yeah, my family was very, I wouldn't say very conservative, but I think, yeah, I, I would say that they were quite conservative and the neighborhood was quite conservative. And, and that time, especially, I think it was more about don't rock the boat. Britain was much more of a class society than it probably is today. And there was this feeling of, oh, we don't want to excel too much because that would be bad. That's not for you. But me personally, I, I was autistic as a child and I was really pretty wild and I was going to nightclubs when I was 14 and I said, and so I actually come from a, more of the creative end, but yeah, I, I, I guess because when I was about 17, I came across paganism and neo-paganism and it might, it might have been silly in many respects. I think one thing it told you was that there was something genuinely strange and romantic about this sort of ancient world and nature and stuff like that. And so I think it inoculated me against the, maybe it didn't inoculate me against the worst excesses of, of the creatives of artistic world, but it, I think it somehow I sort of rolled them together in a way. Yeah. So I don't know, I guess on one hand, I come from a, I definitely come from a creative background, but it also, yeah, there may be an element of it, but some more traditional element as well. So how did you cultivate the discipline to balance out that creative side? Did that come from the conservative upbringing? No, not at all. I think it probably came from the artistic upbringing, education, actually. Because I went to Chelsea College in London and Central St. Martins, which are considered to be the, really the best. And into there, it's, it's really drilled into you that you just have to be doing this all the time and better than everyone else. It's very cutthroat. So I think that probably made me work hard. Actually, I had a, I don't want to say it was a rough upbringing, but it was parts of it were really tough. I was working in a factory in really bad conditions when I was 18, 19, so I was a little bit into my 20th year. Things like that had a big effect. When you are doing a really dangerous job for no money or very little, that all, then you really want to work hard. Uh, and I, actually, even then I was working really hard. I was riding out outside at work, reading all the time. I was painting and meditating. So actually I ended up doing too much. I think it was just, maybe it was just a drive to get away from that really bad environment that sort of kept going. How did you move into hypnotism? By accident, like many things. No, actually a friend of mine was a hypnotist and I asked him how he became a hypnotist because how do you become a hypnotist? But uh, yeah, he was, he's part of the, he's a, a registered instructor under the National Guild of Hypnotists. So it's actually like from him and it was actually great. They brought a lot of things together for me. That's cool. What is that like? It, maybe it's because we already primed it with Freemasonry, yeah. but when you hear Guild of Hi Hypnotists, it almost sounds like this magical cult. Yeah, I, honestly, I don't know because I haven't gone to any of their events, but maybe at some point I will, but it's just one of the sort of hypnotists or societies in America. I saw on your website, you note a distinction between a more clinical form of hypnotism, yeah. which you are not, and then the consultancy yeah. form. Yeah. So, yeah. So if you're going to work with people that have, trying to phrase this politely, but you know, if someone who has a psychological issue, whether that's schizophrenia or, or something else, maybe not that extreme, you need to be a licensed psychotherapist to do that. And use hypnotherapy as part of that. So I, I don't work with people who are in need of psychological help. Yeah. So I work with, I tend to work with people who are trying to improve themselves in some way, for some reason, usually professionally in some way. So, yeah. There's another thing we have in common, because when I say I'm a psychologist, often people hear clinical psychologists, they assume you're seeing patients and right. dealing with yeah. mental illness. And most psychologists are just doing empirical research, trying to study yeah. decision-making or in my case, emotions and brain development. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Or how do your clients find you? Actually quite a few have uh, contacted me after reading my book, but otherwise there is the website. Yeah. So you're, is it like therapy? Are they? I would say it's not like therapy. That's why you would want to go to a hypnotherapist. For me, usually. Obviously, I talk with someone for a while and hear what's going on, but usually it's not like therapy because usually they have an idea of where they want to go. So there's some kind of block for them usually. 
but yeah, we want to get them above baseline, get them working towards their goal when maybe they're not or whatever it is. So it's not like therapy. Yeah. What, what do you think it is that draws someone to seek out a consulting hypnotist to push them? Because I can think of two things, I guess. Yeah. One would be if you already have this intrinsic drive to improve what needs to be done, you yeah. would think that you'd just start reading a lot and putting into practice things and you don't need someone else. And if you do need yeah. someone else, you might think you're going to form an accountability group with friends or family members yeah. and you can do it all interpersonally without spending money on it. Sure. Obviously, this is how you make your living. So I don't want to say it's not not necessary. <laughs> but what what is the yeah. piece that I'm missing there? What do you get yeah. from this? That's a good question. I think. I myself have done it, right? And I've, I've spoken with people that have yeah. either done hypnotism with them or just in some sort of mentoring capacity. And I honestly, I know what I need to do, but I don't always do it. Sometimes I procrastinate and sometimes it's just really good to speak to someone. And if lots of different things are going on in hypnotism or even in life coaching or something like that. But one of them is when there's a, when there's someone who who's an authority that you trust that tells you what you need to do and you need to do it, you definitely will do that. Whereas sometimes they're just knowing that what you need to do is not always enough. Sometimes we need to be told, I guess it, it may be something very primitive in us, little bit something to do with socialization or something like that. Do your clients tend to lack that type of father figure growing up? I really asked. I don't things not. We will have curious relationships with our parents for sure, right? But uh, yeah, I don't think that, I don't think that's the, the issue. How about whether they're involved in a sort of initiation or not? Because when I think of mentors yeah. in my life, the, the PhD program, it's a very structured program yeah. in that you have a, a mentor. And even if directly yeah. your mentor only advises you on research within university systems, generally, you have professors there and some you click with, some you don't. And the ones yeah. you click with, I think people naturally in an education system seek out mentors there. But yeah. then if you're not in the system like that, I imagine it can be more difficult to find mentors in your life. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And when I was at art college, my, we had a personal tutor, what was called a personal tutor that you would go, go and see once a month and discuss your work with, or you could discuss anything. And it sounds a bit like Harvard, but I think that personal contact is just invaluable. And it's certainly, certainly what I remember, and it certainly was pushed me on in that situation. Yeah, I think we need that, but yeah, this sort of initiation into something. Yeah, we definitely need it. For a lot of men, I think myself included, the motivation for self-discipline and self-improvement, part of it comes because you're made to be more attractive. And part of it is literally, yeah. if you're physically exercising, you become more physically attractive. Sure. And then other things men can attract through status, through education, yeah. through money, dominance, social competence, artistry, really any form of skill that you can flaunt, it attracts partner. And the same goes for a woman. Woman can self-improve. And part of the motivation for that improvement might be to secure a mate. And sure. this is another thing that it makes clear evolutionary sense why I would do that, but yeah, it sounds instrumental and most people aren't, I think, thinking about it that seriously as it, it's almost like a form of manipulation and that's not what people are doing. Yeah. Well, sort of I, same thing with women wearing makeup. It's like on one hand, yeah. it's, it clearly might improve sexual attractiveness, but that might not be the motive. If they say it makes me feel good about myself, mm -hmm. you could evolutionary psychologize it in an indirect route saying, maybe you yeah. feel good about yourself because it makes you more conventionally attractive and people yeah. give you all sorts of social feedback. It's this idea of what is people's root motive. I think the thing about that is, yeah, it's, it's true, right? So coming back to the exercise or whatever, that makes you more attractive. But I think there's all, there is almost this sort of mystical element where what you think makes you more attractive as well. It's, I'm sure you've probably experienced where you, you see a woman and she doesn't catch your eye or anything for a long time. And then suddenly she gets a boyfriend and she becomes more attractive. Or you've probably had an experience where you didn't have a girlfriend for a long time. No one showed any interest. You get a girlfriend. Now women are throwing themselves at you. 
And it's, it's this thing that it's in our mind, however we're giving it off, we give off this feeling to other people. And I think the thing about the abstinence is that it doesn't take into account what you're thinking. It might be good and it's definitely preferable to you thinking about women in this sort of pornographic derogatory way, but I know we need to wrap up, but I think the other element is in, let's say traditional religions, you had a, an ideal of the female that you elevated, right? And I think this, that actual act makes you more attracted to women. And I'm not talking about white knighting or anything like that, where you have this image of a sort of transcendent woman, and we don't really have that in the modern age. Because there's this intrinsic motivation for self-improvement. It benefits you. And then there's all the indirect, indirect ways you could frame it. Like it benefits you because people treat you better because you'll find a mate because yeah. you'll be able to achieve all the major life milestones like success in career, family life, leaving yeah. on a legacy, whether that's literal descendants or whether that's an intellectual legacy or through yeah. something you produce in the world. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned we should wrap up angel. Is there anything else you want to say about path of the warrior mystic or any of your other work? No, people can. Get my books from the, all the usual places like Amazon.com and Barnes and Noble, or they can check out my website. But that's it. All right. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it.